Now, we're going to talk about my father today. thought I'd start with a picture of my father. We're in Luke chapter 2, you've got to turn there. Uh, this is my dad, around 1958, I think I'm correct in saying. Him and my mother getting married, which means it'll be their 60th wedding anniversary if they make it another three years, which will be quite something, uh, quite amazing. And they're a wonderful couple. I love my dad very, very much. Uh, I was talking to him yesterday on the phone, and he's just recovering from a, um, an eye operation where he had a corneal transplant, was it? I think. Poor fella, and he's in a lot of, you know, he's very uncomfortable and, uh, and all that. So it's pretty, pretty rough. Um, but these things, these kinds of times will come to us all. Hopefully not too soon, but uh, let's pray for that. But um, I love my dad so much, and I, I, I miss the fact that he's not around close by, but at least I can talk to him on the phone and see him occasionally. And we were making some of our Christmas plans yesterday, and his mum is going to come and spend Christmas Day with us, which is nice, but then we'll go down to see my mum and dad on Boxing Day. I'm looking forward to that. And we have a special relationship with our dads, even if they're not around. We, we owe a lot uh, to dads. This is the Father's Day sermon, but, uh, <laughs> but just as we, as we get into this passage, it seems to me that the whole, as we start in a minute in this passage, it's all about our relationship with our Heavenly Father. It's about the focus on Him. So I want us to be thinking about that as we, as we read through the passage and think about it. Why don't we get into the text, actually. Let's have a look here in Luke chapter 2 and pick up the story as we're preaching through Luke. We're now... In verse 41, maybe verse 39, let's let's go to from there. Verse 39 of Luke 2. By the way, there's drilling going on. You, you heard it, right? There's some plumbing work going on in the school, and it's right behind these walls here. So if you hear drilling, that's what it is. Nothing we can do about it. Sorry. So. Anyway, Luke 2, verse 39. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required of the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, uh, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to find him, to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house. But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. 
But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man. So, this, interestingly enough, is the only incident we have of Jesus' childhood recorded in the Gospels, other than his being a baby, if you want. This is the only time, it's just Luke that has this bit, that is snippet about his life when he was 12. So I think, therefore, it must be particularly important if it's the only thing we have about his, his childhood. We're reaching the end of Luke's introduction about Jesus. We've had, you know, all three through chapter 1 and 2. We've had all the different incidents so far. We're reaching the end of the introduction, and the focus is now on Jesus as a person rather than a baby. He's a, he's a person. He's got his own motivations. He's got his own thoughts. He's got his own actions to be responsible for. And, in fact, this is where Jesus speaks for the first time. Doubtless, in real life, in life, that's spoken. But in terms of what we've got recorded, this is the first time he speaks when he's... 12 years old. An important moment. He's in the temple. Um, he's there because they've gone there for the Passover, the whole family. That was something the men were supposed to do. The women didn't have to go, but we'll talk more about that in a minute. He's 12. Um, often young Jewish boys would be sent to Jerusalem with their fathers as they grew closer to the age of 13, which was the age when they were then responsible for their own uh, life in many ways. And they were responsible to become part of the synagogue community. And they became part of the adult community at 13. These days there's a bar mitzvah. They didn't have them in those days. They, they, the bar mitzvah started about, I think, 500 years after uh, the period we're looking at here. But, the, but there was that growing into manhood period. Uh, and then he was being prepared for that. I don't know what you were doing at 12. But let me ask you about some people. Tell me if you recognize <coughs> any of these faces. Who do you think that is? At the age of 12, he taught himself Euclidean geometry. No, I don't even know what Euclidean geometry is, let alone having learned it. Okay, how about this face? You probably don't know that one. Any idea who that is? That is Nicola Barr. She got a perfect Mensa score. You know the IQ test you can do? Alright, Mensa. She got a perfect score of 164. Perfect. Which means that she has an IQ higher than Einstein or Stephen Hawking. What about this fella here? Anybody know who that is? Who is that? No. Good guess. He's a writer, science fiction writer. Who wrote the, the, the book Fahrenheit 451, amongst many other famous books. It's always testing Leon's brain. He's rubbing the beard. Is, is that helping? Okay, so uh, that's Ray Bradbury. At the age of 12, uh, the age of 12, he started writing four hours a day. Oh, I'm going to be a writer, four hours a day of writing. Isn't that intense? Okay, who else we got? Uh, this one you probably don't know. This is Noah Mintz. Uh, she started a nanny agency when she was 12 years old because she got fed up by the quality of nannies that her parents were hiring to, to look after her and her siblings. She thought it was so poor, they just turn up and stick them in front of the television. She started her own nanny agency, which is now has 40 employees. She's handed, she was the CEO of her company. She handed that over to somebody else recently because she needed to focus on her education at school. Um, and, and now they have this special nannying agency where the nannies come around and they actually do fun stuff with kids and stuff like that. She started it at 12, my goodness. Okay, that one. Who's that? That been mentioned already. Edison. Edison. Okay. Thomas Edison, who invented anybody? Light bulb. 
didn't invent the light bulb, but he made the first incandescent light bulb, which then meant it was sustainable. Yes, good, okay. Actually, I think it's Scott or a Brit, there's only a Brit who actually invented a light bulb, just want to put that out there. But he did perfect it, okay. And he also invented the phonograph, which became then the record player. He invented um, the microphone, the movie camera, and x-rays, like x-ray machines. That's not a bad, I mean, I'd be, I'd be happy with one of those. But that's only a few of the many that he invented. And he started all this when he was 12 years old. Uh, he was selling newspapers and performing electrical and mechanical exp experiments in his spare time at 12 years old. That's pretty incredible. Okay. And then we have this chap at the bottom here. Anybody who that is? You should know. I'm putting pressure on you now. Putting pressure on you. That's Carl Jung, doesn't it? Okay. Carl Jung, a uh, uh, psychoanalyst and very famous guy. But at the age of 12, he actually figured out what a neurosis was. He was 12. And he figured it out because he realized that he'd been having fainting spells at school, while he was in school. He'd been having fainting spells, and he realized it was because he didn't like going to school. He wanted to avoid going to school, so he had a fainting spell, so he could go home. So he figured that out at 12. That's not bad. No one had ever heard of neuroses before and stuff like this. Um, this one you might know. Not Bach, but in the right country. Not Mozart. Kick Beethoven. Okay, Beethoven. We got there eventually. All right, that's Beethoven. Who at the age of 12, at the age of 12, became an assistant organist in the cathedral. I mean, that's not bad at all. And this one you might not know, you won't know, I think. This is Myra Modi, who at the age of 11, actually 11 or 12, started a, a password business that's now a multi-million business. Just, just a way of generating random cryptic passwords, apparently. And then we have this one you may not know, Carl Witt, who at the age of 12 got his PhD in mathematics. Uh, that's not PhD, not, not, a, not an A-level or a degree or even a master's, but a, a PhD in mathematics at the age of 12. And then we have Napoleon, not Napoleon, but somebody else has Nelson, thank you very much. We're not going to have the French in this bit. <laughs> come on, come on. Nelson, who entered the Royal Navy at the age of 12. And finally, Magnus Carlsen who became the world's youngest grandmaster chess champion at the age of 12. Oh my goodness, what were we doing at the age of 12? I did ask for pictures from people of us at the age of 12, but none of you were brave enough. But my wife agreed, and so here we have Penny at the age of 12, in Holland on a school trip, dressed in full Dutch clothing with a hat and even the clogs down here. Uh, at a school trip. Doesn't, doesn't she look great? She hasn't changed a bit. Has <laughs> she? And then that's me at around the age of 12 or so. Um, gosh, I mean, I don't know what you were doing at 12. I, mean, she, I hope we're none of us are too depressed that you haven't invented anything yet in your life or whatever. But I don't think that's the point. What we're looking at today is Jesus at the age of 12. But there are three things in the world that just quickly look at and I hope will be helpful for us in thinking about our own lives. Okay, there he is in the temple. He's um, debating, discussing with the uh, preachers of the time, or the, the teachers of the time. First point, um, first thing we see is love expressed in obedience. Barry touched on this yesterday, uh, last week in his sermon about the heart of Mary and Joseph, that they didn't just do the minimum, they really had a heart of obedience. Yeah. And we see this in, in the, again here, in the, as they go to Jerusalem with Jesus, J 
Joseph was meant to go, Jesus was meant to go, but Mary didn't have to go. The wives, the women did not have to attend this festival. It was an optional extra. But we see Mary going along with Joseph, with Jesus. There is a heart of a desire not to do what is just necessary, but more. There's something, perhaps in Mary's heart, understanding her significance. The angel did speak to her, and she understood that this child she had was no ordinary child. And so she followed through on that, I think, and had a, 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 she didn't have a minimum mindset. She had the heart of a, it was a love for God expressed in obedience. It wasn't a burden for her to do more than was expected of her. I do think that's a great spirit for a Christian to have, not the minimum. You know, as we begin this ministry here, um, it cannot be that uh, we think, well, what's the minimum? What do I have to do? What do I, how many communions do I have to do in one year? Uh, how many, you know, a lot of us are going to do a lot more speaking. I was talking to Danny on uh, Wednesday, we were hanging out, and realizing that next year, 2016, roughly there'll be 45 sermons to be preached. Take out a few for other services and events, right? But let's say roughly 45 sermons. That, and, that, and 45 communions, and 45, um, um, uh, well, not 45 home talks, but a lot of home talks, and 45 welcomes and 45 children's ministry classes, and etc. You know what I mean? So if we have this, if we do have a what do I have to do mindset, it's going to become a burden. It'll be more burdensome with that attitude than the 45. The 45 sermons won't necessarily be a burden, but the minimum mindset would be created it to be a burden. But if we have the attitude of, let me do as much as I can, it actually changes our whole attitude. And if we do it for God, not just for one another or for ourselves, it makes all the difference, doesn't it? So let's be sure that we have that love expressed in obedience, being eager rather than uh, dutiful. Second thing we see, and now we'll look at more Jesus, is Jesus has a love of learning. Uh, he, there he is in the temple. His mum and dad don't even know he's there. They've got a day's journey. I don't know if you're, if you're a parent if you've ever lost one of your children. Uh, it, it does, it does happen, and, uh, and often in supermarkets and places like that. And it did happen to us once in, in Manchester, I think, didn't it, Ben? We lost one more once, okay. Uh, at least once, more than once. There, I think I remember a particular time in, in, in a Tesco's in Didsbury, where we lived in Manchester, and one of our children was very small, and uh, Didsbury, and it was uh, Tesco, well it wasn't Aldi, but you know, that week we were in Tesco. And uh, we were in there, and, and Fred or Lydia just disappeared somewhere down a different aisle. And you know, you just panic. Because you, you have no idea what's going on. I mean, it's natural, it's, you know, and all that. They've got a day's journey. They can't find Jesus. Why can't they? It sounds a bit like Mary and Joseph are being irresponsible. That's not the case. Everybody would travel in a big, what they call a big caravan, right? Not a big, not, not a thing with wheels on, but like a big group of people. Because these festivals were huge. The population of Jerusalem around this time was about 25,000. So not that big a population in Jerusalem, 25,000. And a festival like Passover, an extra, get this, an extra 60 to 100,000 people would arrive. What on earth did they do for accommodation? I have no idea. But can you imagine a town of 25,000 now has 85,000 or 125,000 people? It's very crowded. I mean, Chances of getting lost, losing somebody is quite high. So they travel together, and then they're traveling back after a day. Where are you? Can't find you. They're going around their family and friends, and uh, they, they go back to Jerusalem another day. So they search for three days. They eventually find him uh, in the temple, very emotional search. And, uh, and Mary comes up to him and asks the question, you know, what, what is going on? 
she says uh, here, uh, didn't you know, no, she says, we've been anxiously searching for you. That's a Greek word, uh, which, which is a very strong word, which means I've been in pain. What Mary is saying is kind of like, I've been having panic attacks trying to find you. This is not Jesus, you naughty boy. This is, I, I, I've been at my wit's end. Try, and we can, you know, we can relate and understand that. That's how she's been feeling. But what she finds is, she finds a Jesus there, calmly sitting, discussing and debating with the teachers of the day. He's in the right place with the right people, asking the right questions, in, in a way that his mother maybe doesn't, well, certainly doesn't understand, so she doesn't understand. He's in the right place when he looks like he's in the wrong place. He should be with his mum and dad, but actually this is the right place. Um, he should have been on his way home to Nazareth. No, he should have been in the temple. It was the right place. Nazareth, of course, didn't have very many good teachers like Jerusalem would have, and so this is where he needs to be to learn what he needs to learn. He's in the, he's in, with the right people. Wrong people, right people. I mean, should he be with his mum and dad? No, he should be with these teachers in the temple. Uh, away from his parents, you know, we, sometimes we've got to be careful as parents not to overprotect our children if they're going to learn. That's a whole other parenting lesson, but never mind. You know, we've got to allow some challenge, some risk into their lives. I mean, if they're going to learn, that's that's a whole other lesson. Uh, he's asking questions, very different from Mary's question. What, why have you done this to us? It's very self-focused. What is you, Jesus? Don't you understand? I've been having panic attacks. Come on! And, and he's like, I, 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 why are you? Why are you upset? Why are you searching for me? Didn't you know? I mean, he's got different questions. He's asking the right questions of the teachers that uh, he's with. It's an interesting thing. Learning is disruptive. Learning is disturbing. If you really are learning, it's, it, it disturbs Mary. I think it disturbs Jesus to some extent. I think when you have a love of learning, you find it disturbs you. When you read the Bible, it should disturb us. It should comfort us, but it should also disturb us. When we're learning about things about God, they should, in some sense, disturb us. Life doesn't disturb us. And that's how God teaches us so many things and about how to depend upon Him, what it means to have a real, a real prayer, a real connection with God, a real awareness of His presence. Takes God disturbing us. Has God been disturbing you? Is that how He's teaching you something? And you're not getting what you wanted, what you expected. That's how God teaches us. It's disturbing. I have a, um, I have, oh, that's right, that's the right picture here. Um, I have a singing teacher, Jeff, there he is there, Jeff Rolker. I've had a number of problems with my voice over the last 10 years, maybe, where I've lost, I used to sing a lot, most of you know, I studied music, I wanted to be an opera singer, and I have singing lessons for many years. And over the last number of years, I've lost power in my voice. I found my voice getting very fatigued very quickly. After a sermon or some song leading, I'm like hoarse and I have no voice. It's very ironic. Even people who've not had training don't have the problem I have, even though I've had all this training. And I've had to learn how to accept that weakness. And that's been humbling for me, since I love to sing and preach and stuff. So, you know, I find that very humbling. But a few weeks ago, or a couple of months ago, I thought, maybe I should get some advice. And so I found this chap, Jeff, who lives in Chesham, opposite where you guys live. I mean, really, up that road where that car wash is, just on the top there, right near you guys. And uh, he's a great fellow. <coughs> just kidding. But he's a lovely fellow, and he has a, 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 an expertise in these areas. And I've been going to him for about um, two or three months now. And it's amazing how much it's changed me. 
change my voice. So it's a work in progress, but I'm very encouraged by the progress. But the reason I share this is because if you've ever done any singing, if you've ever been taught singing or acting, you know you have to get way out of your comfort zone if you're going to learn. And uh, so Jeff's got me doing all these weird exercises and vocal exercises, some of which involve um, holding my hands above my head like this, singing like this, or holding my hands out like this, or swinging, or rolling my head around, what he calls a bobblehead, and doing this randomly while I'm singing these exercises, or doing the lip trill, which is the thing, and lots of that, and a number of other things which are way too embarrassing to put on camera. So, um, but you know, I, when I first got, got there, the first few lessons, I was hesitant and stiff, you know. Gradually, I've learned to loosen up and go with it, you know, and, 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 and I'm learning better. But I think it's, I realize that this is a metaphor for so many other things in my life. Am I willing? Kate, you talked about getting outside of the comfort zone with the hope stuff. And, but that's how we grow. And I, I wonder for, for a lot of us, is God taking us out of our comfort zone or something? Maybe, honestly, honestly, I think the whole Watford um, uh, endeavour, uh, our adventure together, it's surely taking all of us outside of our comfort zone. And here's the thing, if all we think about is, am I in or outside my comfort zone, it's not going to be a very exciting experience. If we're thinking, what's God going to teach me through this? That's much more exciting, and I think it leads us more to faith. Because then it's supposed to be about God, not about us. And I think Jesus understood that. He was there, 12 years old, with all the temple teachers, uh, teachers of the law, in the right place, with the right people, asking the right questions, not, to, not afraid to learn, not afraid to ask questions, not afraid even to answer as well. But I think it, it, Christian life is a life of lifelong learning. This is another chapter for us. Let's get ready. Here are some tips how to get ready to learn, okay? First thing is we've got to pray. How can we get ready to learn? And particularly, I think, to learn from the Bible, going back to the Bible as we feel disturbed in our, you know, where we are and what God's doing. Let's go back to the Bible for comfort, for strength, for wisdom. Going back here, the first thing we need to do is pray. Pray for wisdom. Pray for insight. What do I even need, God? Where, what are you teaching me? Re reveal. Asking God to show us. To speak to us, to maybe you'll speak in your heart. Maybe there's some way the Holy Spirit will guide you into uh, insight. The first thing is to pray. I think the next thing is to plan. Um, <coughs> there's, there's a time to pick up the Bible and read whatever. <coughs> Excuse me, but there's a time to say, I know what God's. I think I know what God's trying to teach me. Let me study it. If it's fear, study fear. Or look at the life of Jesus and His courage. Or look at characters like Moses and how they dealt with. Fear. Maybe it's to do with patience. Let me study patience. Let me find every verse. Let me look up the most patient people in the Bible and study them and their heart. Let me look at that. Maybe it's honesty and openness or, or, or love or I don't know. But maybe if you know what it is, then go to the Bible and make a plan. Study a book, study a character, but don't read randomly. Um, read with and study with a plan. And I think the third thing is to publicize. So pray, plan, and publicize. Publicize what you're learning. In other words, share with other people. I'm, I, th I'm, I think God's teaching me this. I'm learning this. What, what have you been learning? Uh, what's your insight into this?
this issue. Uh, how would you approach it? What's helped you in your prayer life? What's helped you in the Bible, in, in this circumstance that I'm going through? I think if we pray, we plan, and we publicize, I think that, that'll help us to learn to grow and to grow in whatever it is that God's got in mind for us. So, uh, first thing we've talked about is the, uh, the eagerness to not uh, just do the minimum. And the second is to, uh, is to love uh, the learning experience, which can be so disturbing. And the third thing, I think, is just we see a great love for God here in Jesus. A great love for God. He wanted to be in his Father's house. He wanted to be there, not somewhere else. He was searching for God in a sense. He already knew God, but he was there in that place to be there with God. And he was sitting there, asking questions, speaking, talking to those who were able to teach him. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And they said, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for me. Why were you searching for me? He said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house, my father's house. He really wanted to be with God, with the people who could teach him about God. There was a love for God. There was a, a desire for him to be with God. The most interesting thing about what he says here is that he says, my father, my father. Judaism did not have, does did not take account of my father. You didn't have my father in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. My Father was not there. The Father, our Father, Father God in some sense, maybe not that much, but some sense, but my Father, you don't see that. So Jesus is saying something completely new now. He's saying, my Father's house, this is where I had to be. Dei, the, the, the must word, the day verb, uh, word in, uh, often used in Luke of that must. I must be here, I have to be here. This is the place I'm supposed to be, here with God in his house, my father's house. I had to be with my father. This, this is the thing that's so revolutionary about being a Christian is we have that personal relationship with God. It's not a We have a corporate relationship too, but it's not just about that. It's about God being our personal father, that personal relationship is what it's really all about. And all of us who've made the step, into discipleship. We made a step into Christ. We've become a Christian. We know what that was like. 31 years ago tomorrow, I was baptized into Christ. 2nd of November, 1984. Uh, 31 years ago. I, it's a long time ago. Most, some of you were not born. I know even those of you that were, a lot of you were quite young. Um, and I remember very vividly that day. I remember the studies of the Bible leading up to an understanding of what discipleship really was, of what repentance really was, and what baptism was really for. I remember that, but I remember also very vividly the day that we went down the 2nd of November to Bermondsey in southeast London to a church where there was a baptistry and 30 odd people from church being there and the, and the immersion, the baptism into Christ going under the water, coming up out of the water and remembering this is my new life. The sins of God. I now know why I was born. Why I exist. And I know that my life is now a life of following Jesus. How exciting that's going to be. How exciting in lots of ways I didn't expect. And they were a bit scary and all that. And 
some disappointments along the way, of course. But still, I knew that life was ahead of me. It was a relationship with Jesus. It was a relationship with God now that I had. Not just a knowledge of God. We've all, I think most of us here, been through that. What an incredible thing to offer other people to, that they can have this. It's good to celebrate it and remember what God has done. Tomorrow being my spiritual anniversary, I'm going to take the morning to go to Dunstable. I love to go to the Dunstable Downs. It's my favourite place to go and have extended prayer times. And uh, I'll be near you, yes. And uh, I'll be up in Dunstable tomorrow morning and walking around on the top of the hills there and praying and remembering that day 31 years ago and thanking God for all that he has done. And I hope and I pray that as I do that, that God will refresh in me the joy of of forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And refresh me enough for the next few days and weeks, but refresh me, I hope, also for our, our, our adventure for next year. You know, that's, I feel I need that. I need that. I need, I need to be closer to God if God's going to be able to do His work in me. Maybe there's something there for all of us to think about. The angel earlier on has said that Jesus was Savior, Christ, and Lord. Simeon has said that, that Jesus was going to be the one for salvation for all peoples, the Gentiles are included. And Jesus now is, is making the beginnings of the claim that he is not just a great man, or will be a great man, but he is the Son of God. Coming out of his own lips is what we're hearing now. It's interesting, all of this that we see uh, in this uh, short passage. Is there something here about us getting ready to be a congregation in our own right, in a sense? Is there something about that here? Is there something about uh, understanding what it will take to, for us to get prepared? I think what we see in this whole passage is we see a funneling down that starts with the parents and ends up with Jesus, with his father, his spiritual, his, the God as his, as his father. This is the way the passage is shaped to that point. And then we see after that that Jesus goes home to be with his parents for a number of more years until the timing is right. For him to start his ministry. Mary ponders all these things in her heart. It says she doesn't understand everything, but she remembers everything. And she ponders them. I think perhaps today, mothers today might post something on Facebook uh, about what happened. I don't know. But she pondered it in her heart. What a good, good, what a good phrase. A good way of thinking about responding to a sermon, a communion, a talk about the poor. To ponder in the heart what we've just seen, what we've just heard. Let's do that today. So, Jesus' parents, they went beyond what was necessary. Let's be people eager to do what is good. Uh, we see that Jesus loved learning. Let's be a people who love to learn. That's where the excitement of life is. And we also see that Jesus had that close relationship with his father, with the, with the father. It was close, it was personal. Let, let's make sure that we're, we're uh, refreshing our own relationship with our Father because we'll need that as we go forward. To God be the Lord.